John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1332.PR2502, certificate number 39453, B. Traven. Hey, that's my number. Sure enough. Oh, just look at that fat, rich, printed number. That's the kind of sugar Papa likes. Oh, people be Traven. <laughs> I be Traven. I miss be Traven. Have you seen The Treasure of the Sierra Madre? No. Are you resistant in general to kind of TCM black and white movie culture? No, right? You do a podcast about yeah. In fact, about square old movies that that dads watch. Two nights ago, I watched Duck Soup. Oh, Duck Soup has aged super well. Plus, it's it's like sixty seven minutes. It's so great. All old movies should be like an hour because then your kids like won't complain. But then a week ago, we well, we watched Bringing Up Baby just because we were looking for some wholesome fare uh, for our nine year old daughter. How did that play? Um, I think we all enjoyed it. She's now walking around talking with a mid-Atlantic accent. I was born on the side of a hill. George. I was born on the side of a hill. George! <laughs> uh, and, it, and that's delightful, and I, I'm encouraging her to keep speaking in, in mid-Atlantic. But you also remember those movies from the 30s are from that era where, um, where funny, where, where like a romantic comedy is just everyone shouting all the time. <laughs> like they're just shouting at each other because it's... It's not that far away from the state. It's called Screwball. Yeah. And I guess, it, yeah, that's right. It's, ah, the, uh, ah, they all oh. come from George Kaufman's stage places, and audiences would just roll in the aisles when um, people uh, tripped over a carpet and yelled at the butler. Yeah, a lot of slipping on banana peels. Um, a whole dinosaur falls down and bringing a baby. That's right. A lot of people talking over each other, and then be- and then the mishearing is the joke, or somebody runs off and, and something bad happens because... There's a lot of just confu- – a lot of slapstick is just confusion. People just sort of running around in confusion. That's especially true in the Marx Brothers, where it's really just how many gags per minute can we get in here. I don't think I ever truly appreciated how much um, how much Harpo is just the prototype of the Joker. Like he just <laughs> wants to watch the world burn. He's absolutely chaotic evil. Like he'll just see a telephone and cut the cord yeah, of it for right. no for, for, to the receiver for just, no reason. You turn your back on him, and he just has a giant piece of he has a giant pair of scissors in his in his coat. <laughs> he cuts your belt. He cuts the back off of your jacket. You know, and uh, and he has that same manic look on his face, but he never gets in trouble. Really, like he never pays the price. Is that what you want? You want justice for Harpo? 
No, but I watched I watched Duck Soup with a new eye. I used to hate him. I used to just feel like, what the what is this all about? Like I didn't I was focused on Groucho. The uh, Marx Brothers have the three types of funny people that there are. Smartass, uh, stupid, and horny. Right. Oh, like, right. And Harpo's horny. Harpo's always chasing blondes and they, right. they're going around the desk giggling like it's a Beetle Bailey cartoon. But I felt like Chico really stood out to me in, in Duck Soup. Like all of a sudden I, I understood that Chico was really the glue that held the whole game together. Groucho's just making quips. He, Groucho and Harpo are on their own planet. Yeah. Chico is actually, I mean, sometimes there's a fourth one advancing the plot like there is in Duck Soup because they, they hadn't got rid of Zeppo yet. But, right. But yes, you need Chico because. Um, He's the one that's he, that he, seems, talks, he talks to both of them. Right. He seems rooted <laughs> in reality, at least a little. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think old movies age pretty well, but you know, I don't want to pretend that it's the same experience. Like you relax into bringing up baby the same way you would into um, Legally Blonde. No, 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 um, it's not. And I did, I haven't seen The Treasure of the Sierra Madre for the simple reason that what it of all of the thousand movies that could have been on the late night movie. The 200 times I watched the late night movie, well, you know, it wasn't one. That's the big change, I think, with people. Any people any younger than us do not have the late night movie. Like, we were kind of forced to watch old movies by local TV stations that got them in syndication packages. Yeah, you went around the three channels, and you picked the least, the least bad, bad option. And if, right? it was, if it was Catherine Hepburn in a taxi cab yelling at someone... Yeah. You watched that. Sure, that ended up um, being it. And that's go- that's totally gone now that you can exactly choose what you want to watch. And really, just if you liked the last thing you watched, watch 10 more of those, and then it's 3 a.m., you know? So um, I think we're that's the that's the big reason for a generation that um, sometimes gets lambasted for their impatience with old movies. Like, do you remember when Shea Serrano got interviewed by Esquire, and he said, like, yeah, my new movie book doesn't have any old movies. And then he was like, I mean, some old movies are good, like Star Wars or Alien, but like... But it doesn't have any, like, other old... Like, to him, old movies are late 70s. Right. And he, I think he said he tried to watch Rafifi. This is a, do you know this franchise movie? Yeah. Where they bust into Topkapi Palace or something. Um, and he was just like, you know... And people always said it was a great heist movie. And no, like, you know, I've seen heist movies. And, you know, you can just sit back and watch Mission Impossible 4. And this was not that, right. you know? Well, and it's the... <clears throat> These movies are the 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 font of so much that we take for granted in our culture. Like watching Duck Soup, you suddenly have an appreciation for Bugs Bunny that you couldn't possibly have without having seen Duck Soup. Right? I I watched Bugs Bunny and thought that most of those gags were invented by Warner Brothers. But Bugs is just Groucho. And so much of that um so much of that humor is was originally just referencing what everybody would have known, but but to me, Generation X kid, I was uh, it it was it was copped well enough that it seemed original, and that's how I know that's how I know that whole sense of humor. And I wonder if that's why and that's probably a big challenge to people being shown old movies is that they've seen all the sharper, more finely honed right. descendants of it, you know, in every variety. And so the Urtex is not that interesting. It's why Close Encounters is so boring now. Yeah. But when we watched it in the theaters, you were on the edge of your seat through all those scenes where Richard Dreyfuss is just being a dope. Your your stomach is still clenched because you know somewhere out there there's a spaceman that's going to come. But compare that to Independence Day. There's, sure, there's no comparison. Independence Day, you see the Starman waiting in the sky. Right. You know, 
20 minutes in and then he gets punched. Um, I but, was, I, so, so the fact that tastes advance, not just change, but advance really does it. It's an honest knock against these movies is that, you know, it doesn't matter who dreamed up that device or structure because you've seen sharper versions of it, like on, uh, on network TV, you know, right. uh, I was reading this story. Uh, this is a little tangential. I'm sure you'll be shocked. I was reading this <laughs> like early 20th century ghost story called the white people yesterday. Uh-huh. Cause I thought it was going to be about. Oh, sure. I thought it was going to be about racial, racial justice. Sure, you're, you're, you're woke. And- no. I was researching the trope of the ghost who doesn't know he's a ghost. I was trying to see how far back it goes. Oh, how far back does it go? It turns out there's, I mean, the most famous early examples are Lovecraft and uh, Ambrose Bierce, who, who both used it for twist endings, just like movies like The Sixth Sense. So the reader also didn't know they were a ghost right. until the end. The, the, the narrator discovers he's a ghost at the end and is like, what? Like the Lovecraft story is a pretty famous one that ends with, him seeing a shambling monster and reaching out and finding out it's a mirror. Oh, no, no way. But the funny thing is you read all these now and you immediately see the twist. Right. Like in the white people, um, this young girl in the Scottish uh, Heath is uh, always sees these anachronistic people riding out of the, the moor and uh, in, in a little um, silent little waif girl who plays with her. And her whole life she sees these like strange pale creatures and for the whole story, it's a novella, 10 chapters. Nobody else can see them. Uh-huh. Um, everyone else seems very interested and nods concernedly when she talks about them. And then at the end of the story, we find out, guess what? They were ghosts. They were ghosts. All those, yeah. It's not that she's a ghost, but oh. it's just all the pale, the pale, strange people that she saw that nobody else could see were ghosts. And that's the twist ending of this story. Hmm. And you're like, well, yeah, I guess if you've never read a ghost story, this must be a real eye popper, you know? <laughs> You gotta, you're going to have to run and tell all your friends to read this. The treasure of the Sierra, Sierra Madre, like so so many of the plots of those films, um, even if you haven't seen it, it it percolated into the culture enough that I know it. Or I, I, It's just sort of like the Bible in the sense that you don't have to have read it. Well, not if you don't want to go to heaven, John. Yeah, I know. And as somebody who steadfastly refuses to go to heaven, I... I, <laughs> I avoid the Bible at all costs. I will not read it. But I'm not I, even going to open that drawer in the hotel because it's going to get me slightly closer to heaven. I feel like I know the stories, though. You know what I mean? Like, there's hardly any biblical right. reference you can make that I, that it's not clear. Like, oh, yeah, right. And Shakespeare the same. Like, you know this, you know the plots. The... Uh, I mean, the main way Treasure of the Sierra Madre has percolated into the culture is through the Blazing Saddles bit about not needing any stinking badges. Uh-huh. That's a that's a, a Mexican uh, cop in um, or a Mexican bandito type in Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Right. It's I think it's often misquoted. He never he never says we don't need no stinking badges. What does he say? We don't need no badges. I don't have to show you any stinking badges. It, it, it like conflates to it's like I am your father, Luke. You know where they just take the two adjacent lines and everybody misquotes them. That's and that's how it, that's how it should be. The scriptwriters should we should go. They if should I went known. back in time, I wouldn't kill Hitler. I think I would make that adjustment. Yeah, to I think we're script. right and they're all wrong. Yeah, if right. uh, if a hundred thousand people think your line is one way, then it really should be. It was I am your father, Luke. Berenstein Bears. <laughs> I'm from a parallel universe where <laughs> Blazing Saddles quoted it right. Um, you know, I don't love Treasure of the Sierra Madre. I watched it on TCM, I don't know, many years ago. I should probably give it another chance because I love Bogart. I love sure. John Huston movies. It's, 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 a, maybe it's past the point where you would watch it as an adventure story and instead watch it as a cultural artifact. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I would say over maybe two-thirds of the reason why I watch old movies is because they are not um, 
relaxing passive entertainment. Like you're constantly being like, Ooh, like, like look what the butler's wearing right. or, um, this what, what set. Is that? What, yeah, exactly. <laughs> look at this weird art deco set that looks nothing like a real penthouse or like, what is that slang term she just used? Or, um, I was watching the, uh, have you ever seen the Peter Cook Dudley Moore movie Bedazzled? Yes. Where he sells his soul and, and keeps trying to make wishes and Satan keeps tricking him. Yeah. I mean, it's just an insane late 60s artifact where Dudley Moore wrote this kind of da, 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 music score and Raquel Welch does a sexy dance. And you're like, this is from another planet. Yeah. And and if you sat down thinking this is going to be a fun comedy like the Brendan Fraser remake, you're going to be pissed off. But like, it's way more fun that it's... That it's um, such a curio, you know, that you people can, are not acting like people. You can almost mute them <laughs> if you're not really into mid-Atlantic accents. In Bringing Up Baby, there were all these, there were scenes where they had an actual leopard that was interacting with them. Baby. The titular baby. The titular baby. But there were also lots of rear projection shots <laughs> where where the leopard's in the car with them or whatever, but it's clearly, it's clearly not real. And I... Halfway through the movie, I was more fascinated by mm-hmm. what is the decision making here, where, where sometimes it's a leopard, sometimes it's a rear projection leopard, and sometimes it's a split screen, or you know they film the leopard in the room and then they film the people in the room and kind of superimpose them. That's the barrier to modern people is any moment where where you're um, you're reminded it's a movie, you know, because yeah. I think a lot of people just want two hours of of blank blankness, you know, two hours of not thinking. That's what, that's what mo- the gift that movies give them. Yeah. And, but I know I'm with you. I'm, you know, when I see a bad special effect, I'm like, yay. You know, <laughs> um, in particular set dressing where you see things that a contemporary filmmaker trying to make a, make the house look like it's in the thirties would never have actually made it look like like a like a, a twenty five foot ceiling, and yeah, or or like a, the the weird choice of just like colonial furniture. You know, a, a contemporary set dresser would do that Great Gatsby thing where they're like, everything is going to be exactly Gatsby, and not realize that you know Gatsby had some old stuff. You know, G- Gatsby yeah. bought some stuff at a thrift store too, or there was some stuff in the house when he bought it already. You know, uh, and that stuff is fun to see when you look at old. Movies well, like by the way, Gatsby goes in the public domain January first, so you can make your movie of Gatsby with all the right furniture. Really? Can I make a musical? Can I make it a musical? You can uh, a hip hop musical. Gatsby. <laughs> Didn't uh, Baz Luhrmann already do that? <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> I mean, that, that also kind of brings up that the pace of these movies is what's is what's kind of yeah. difficult to people. Because um, you know, often it just not not even the things that happen in the screenplay, but it's just the fact that you know it'll be like a two minute master shot will be the will be the scene and, and we're not used to that. Yeah. The, 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 the shots where they, what was the, what was the movie I watched just recently? Some, some world war two era spy movie where a guy walked up three flights of stairs <laughs> and, he and keep, the, the yeah. camera, it didn't follow him. The camera just planted itself at the top of the stairs and waited for him. That's nice. That's so, thoughtful. So it, it, we, we, we spent real time waiting for him to walk. We could hear him walking up the stairs and it wasn't even for dramatic purposes. It was just like, we got to wait for him. He's coming. Treasure of the Sierra Madre is kind of ahead of the um, rear projection leopard curve because it was one of the first big Hollywood movies to actually shoot on location. Oh. Um, which was held to be incredibly impractical and expensive in the 30s and 40s. But um, So this is post-war. Yeah, 1948. Or, and, and, and it was shot around 46, 47. John Huston actually went to Mexico and shot big chunks of this movie uh, you know, which is about the corrupting influence of 
of uh, of this uh, hidden cache of gold on a you know a couple ne'er do well treasure hunters from north of the border. Um, no uh, honor among thieves. Bogart and Tim Holt and John Huston cast his own dad as the as the kind of crazy old he he uh, <laughs> guy who's prospector guy who's gone native. Um, and he won an Oscar. Uh, it won three Oscars. It was one of the biggest box office hits of 1948. Uh, the studio wasn't wrong. It was incredibly expensive and went wildly over budget to shoot this movie in Mexico. But John Huston was kind of always, uh, I was always my own man. <laughs> I'm, I'm now Peter Bogdanovich, and I do very accurate impressions of directors no one's heard of. Um, but while... Uh, Houston was shooting in Mexico. Um, the uh, the set received a visit from a man named Hal Croves, who claimed to be the literary agent of B. Traven, the the mysterious reclusive author uh, now living in Mexico who had written Treasure of the Sierra Madre in the previous decade. And B is the is the first initial B. B. B initial, Traven. Yeah. And it, for Bernard or and it or stands for nothing Boris. in the books. Um, you know the books just say um, there's no about the author. It just says B. Traven, uh, Tamaulipas, Mexico, or something. You know that's all you get because this guy was the most reclusive author of his time, and really, I mean, a better recluse than Salinger or Pynchon for sure, because nobody knows where he came from. Like nobody thinks Salinger. Is an alien, right? Who just sho- just bailed? Who just showed up in small town New Hampshire or whatever? Like he was a guy. He was a guy with friends or whatever who just decided he would not be in the papers anymore. And you know, I don't understand that. We don't have that anymore. But sure. Um, but B. Traven is like the guy Traven that came it, out of nowhere. He invent. He's like the guy that invented Bitcoin. Nobody, no, nobody knows anything about. It. Let's get on the dark web <laughs> and find B. Traven. His own publicist, his own publishers, never met him. Um, there's even. <laughs> There's even disagreement over which language his books were originally written in. Um, there were some claims that they were German books later translated into English, but American audiences were often told they were English books that had later been translated into German. And in fact, readers have noticed that the language is awkward in both languages. Like the German versions of his book appear to have weird um, Americanisms in them, you know, mistranslated slang and so forth. Whereas the American versions of his book also sound like an ESL speaker um you know, you can almost hear the thick German accent on the page sometimes. There's a whole discipline of literary archaeology that, um, where those people also have not read the Bible but pretend to have. Surely someone has done a, a deep dive on Treasure of Sierra Madre to find out the the Ur text. Many, many people have. They're called Travenologists. Oh, wow. You can, yeah, this is a, a, an exact specific study of, uh, you know, not paranormal uh, investigation, but, you know, myster- uh, unsolved mysteries type. Is there a sense that the book was created by uh, by extraterrestrials, for instance, or, or chupacabras? I mean, that would explain why it's weird in both German and English, right? If right. it's originally written in Venusian. Right. Um, so because of the, the mass number of amateur and professional literary scholars trying to get to the bottom of Traven's mystery, both in his lifetime and after, there's nothing but theories. Um, he is variously American, British, Swedish, Norwegian, Lithuanian, or German. Um, it, there's very kind of outlandish, fanciful theories where he is a, a famous author like Jack London or Ambrose Bierce, who is d- 
disappeared into Mexico, faking his own death in some cases in order to continue writing. I don't know if the numbers... <laughs> because there's nothing... Nothing beats writing, you know, like <laughs> I'm going to go off the grid and write the fame and the money, social novels. That's not what you want to do. You just want to be left alone. I love the Jack London theory. I didn't think about this. When was Jack London born? Jack London was born in 1876. Well, it's not impossible. Traven died in 1969. So Jack London would have been 95 years old and this his second life. Right. Um, so I guess the, the the dates work out, but it's the kind of thing where the the outlandish theories get all the ink. So in one account, he is actually Mexican President Adolfo Lopez Mateos, <laughs> huh? and this is not totally crazy because his sister, uh, uh, President Mateos's sister, before he was in office, Esperanza, did in fact discover Traven's work and translate it into Spanish and and get him a huge Mexican following. Huh. Um, but President Mateos, you know, spent the rest of his life denying that he was in fact B. Traven. Um, his, uh, even his own widow often wondered if he was an illegitimate son of Kaiser Wilhelm II, because he had a weird little shrine full of clippings about Kaiser Wilhelm, which you would not expect one of the leading social realist, anarcho-syndicalist authors of his day to have. Unless Um, it, yeah. Unless unless he really was a lost prince. Or in another variety, he's the, um, he's the lost half-brother of, uh, Walter Rathenau, uh, the, a Weimar era German official, like a pretty important one. I think for foreign minister of, of Weimar Germany, uh, you know, could he have been the uh, illegitimate offspring of either Kaiser Wilhelm's father with an, or Kaiser Wilhelm II with some stage actress right. or the father of, uh, of minister Walter Adenau. So, he, you know, there's lots of theories where he's a celebrity. And at one point life magazine was reported to have offered a $5,000 reward for information leading to the uh, uh, intellectual capture of, of B. Traven, although prop, that's probably a um, just a rumor started in the Mexican press to, to gin up interest in his work. Did anybody ever suggest that it might be Sir Francis Bacon? <laughs> Sir Francis Christopher Bacon. Marlowe? Now 650 <laughs> years old. <laughs> uh, so this was a mystery even in its time and one that, that was in the newspapers. In 1946, as Houston is shooting Sierra Madre in Mexico, this Hal Crowes guy tight-lipped Hal Crow's guy who keeps showing up on set saying that he's he's Traven's agent and watching everything. Uh, it becomes just common knowledge among the crew that this is, in fact, Traven. Oh. And Houston, in, in fact, didn't believe it. And to the, to, the rest of, in, to the end of his life, in his memoirs, always said, I was never sure that that guy was Traven. But that immediately became common knowledge on the crew that, uh, that Traven was hanging out here undercover as his own agent. Um, and, you know, when the movie came out, it was a big hit. Suddenly the spotlight turned to him both uh, in America and in Mexico and stateside. You was know, he interfering in the production? Man? Was he like monkeying with the script, his agent? He'd be like, in my book, I, that is to say, <laughs> in mean... the book of my client, B. Traven. <laughs> no, apparently uh, he just kept his head down. He was, you know, he was exactly the way you would expect a reclusive author to act on the set, which maybe was the problem. Um but he was just there for free craft services. <laughs> that's right. He's always hanging around crafty, eating all the good breakfast burritos as soon as they come up. But can't you forensically just figure out where the money is going? Well, that's what happened. So after the movie came out, suddenly this guy is now uh, this, you know, before you could. So he had written a series of novels you know, throughout his career. He wrote 12 social novels and a series of short stories, mostly about Mexico and mostly about the oppressed people of Mexico, uh, peasants, Indians. Uh, underpaid oil workers, you know, the kind of the common man. And, and 
you know, upholding their dignity against it's one. It's these are the Steinbeck of Mexico. Yeah, against the the forces that are laying them low. And you know, there were certainly a ton of twentieth century writers that discovered Mexico as this amazing right. kind of quasi lawless canvas where anything could happen. So D. H. Lawrence and uh, Malcolm Lowry and uh, uh, Graham Greene, you know, all write novels about you know, kind of the the adventures that one can still have in Mexico, right? right. Um, but uh, Mexico loved Traven in a way that they did not take to all these other authors. He got it right. You know, for one thing, he was the one that stayed. You know, Lawrence may have lived on the beach for three years and written The Plumed Serpent and then headed to Australia or whatever, but um, but Traven stayed. And, and, and the books were... They seemed authentic. They were clearly not written in Spanish, in other words. Right. And, he, you know, he never claimed... And the books start... His books start out in Germany. His first book is called... It's usually translated as the Cotton Pickers, but I think in German it's Der Wobbly, oh, as in the International the Workers of the World. Yeah, um, uh, about low-paid farmhands. And his second book, if you're plotting his journeys across the world, is called The Ghost Ship, or sorry, The Death Ship. I think it's usually translated as The Death Ship, and it's about it's about a coffin ship. Are you aware of this phrase? I had not heard of a coffin. This seems ship. like an omnibus episode. Maybe we should do coffin ships. What is a coffin? Maybe I should do one now. It is. Not- <laughs> you have access. <laughs> It is uh, not a ship full of coffins. It's a ship that has been overinsured such that it's worth more dead than alive. It's worth more sunk than alive back in London or, or Hamburg or wherever. Right. Which means that it's an incredibly unsafe place to work because nobody cares. <laughs> you know, it's the, it's the lowest level of safety, the lowest paid people, the scum of the earth walking its planks. Right. Please start an oil fire. Please. <laughs> Whatever you do, please crash into that reef <laughs> off the coast of Senegal. We would love it. Wink, wink. No survivors would be better. Anyway, so his second book is about the kind of the low life support, this kind of ship. And then after that... The books are all set in Mexico, in the jungles. And these books originally appeared in German, giving credence to the idea that he's... The first two originally appeared in German. Um, At some point in his Mexican career, they started to come out in English and German simultaneously, or even in in, uh, in North America first. And and Mexico, his last book is, uh, in 1960, he wrote a, a novel called... Aslan Noval, uh, which has never even been translated into English. Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an unfinished it's a, eighth it's Narnia a book. Fan fanfic? You walk through a closet and suddenly you're in Chiapas and they're shooting at you. Um, and so, you know, and this is kind of an off the rails. Uh, many scholars have said it must be by a different hand because it's this weird um, kind of torrid, quasi pornographic, uh, you know, a real kind of pot boiler. Well, he was 90 by, the, by that time. Well, so. if he's Jack London, he's <laughs> he's almost 90. If he's these other guys, maybe he's closer to 80. Um, and so, you know, he has this weird career arc where, you know, despite producing one of the best-known novels of the 20th century, thanks to Humphrey Bogart and John Huston, um, a lot of his work is these this weird uh, anarchist... Marxist-Leninist social novels. And polemical. Polemical, extremely polemical. And not not all that rel- well-written, oh. like by all accounts, just not a great stylist, but um, but an amazing flair for narrative. So that you're, and, and the authenticity, you know, some of it's just the local color of really knowing this weird milieu of the poverty of the Mexican jungles well, but also apparently just a real, a real page turner's. Um, Somerset mom once called himself, you know, the first tier of the second tier writers. And you could say the same thing about 
Traven, I think. Mexico loved him once his works were in translation there. Uh, when he died, his ashes were spread from a plain over southern Mexico and a village in Chiapas that where the ash, near where the ashes had been deposited actually changed its name, you know, adding uh, de Traven to the end of its name. Um, because he, because the, the, his ashes showed up in their, in their coffee one morning. Yeah, exactly. They were like, what is, <coughs> boy, there's a little bit of, of Traven in all of us now, isn't there? <laughs> um, but as you pointed out, you can't write the, the source novel for one of the biggest movies of 1948 without having life and look magazine come looking for you. And that's exactly what happened. Um, uh, a Mexican journalist named Luis Spota. There's, at one point here, there's a war between two Mexican newspapers called Oi and Manana, uh-huh. today and tomorrow, <laughs> that are fighting over this. <laughs> and it seems like Oi is always getting in the, the last word, which is very odd. Right. Considering that Manana has, should have the next day's news. You would think, but you know, there's a war between Oi and... Uh, and uh, Manana in the mind of every Mexican? There, there's, a, there's a war between Oi and, uh, and Manana in my own mind, and Oi always gets the last word there, too. I would say uh, that's true. Well, I don't know. Does that mean you always do things today and not tomorrow? No, but I. Uh, but tomorrow, John, uh, really see. has to suck it, yeah, he, right? Today, John is not making any decisions on his behalf. Which is a bummer. It's Because you, right now you're less than 12 hours away from becoming him. It's especially a bummer when, you, when I regard past John and think about all of his how, how he screwed you over. He screwed me over time and time again. I well, hate that's that good. Guy you need more. to pass. You need to pay it forward. That's right. The future John. Why? The, why? Why should future John benefit? I'm not benefiting. From, I'm. I'm not him. Yeah. Yet. Screw that guy. Ken, we've been trying to get omnibus merch to the futurelings uh, for a long time, and it, you know, it's, we just weren't trying that hard. Yeah, doing a great show two times a week has been our main focus, and neither of us have a, a especially mercantile. Uh, m- mentality, but demand was so high that we've come up with a pretty great way of getting shirts to our fans. If you go to omnibusproject.com slash store right now, there are a variety of shirts as well as hoodies, stickers, magnets, mugs, and more stuff coming now. Every month, we now have two shirts from our friend Dave at Mediocrity. Uh, November shirts were kind of a fun Tintin-like cartoon of us and a cool omnibus seal. I think you're also going to like December shirts if you like mail trucks, folks. Hello. And or airplanes. Uh, and then via T Public, there's a wider variety of stuff that just says omnibus or futurelings. And... Boy, what a great holiday shopping idea, John. Well, that's the thing. It's the holiday season for a, a large variety of the holiday merrymakers of the world, including pagans. And um, It's their solstice, too. That's right. Before and we stole it. The druids, like, who knows who they are or where they're from, but, but uh, it's a great time to buy them a gift of Omnibus merch. This is a good way to convert your friends and family to listening to Omnibus, uh, get them a hoodie, and then they learn to love it, and then they start listening to the show. It's the holiday season, so hoop-dee-doo and dickery-dock, and don't forget to hang up your sock. Sure, hoop-dee-doo, the famous holiday saying. (laughs) We all all say hoop-dee-doo and (laughs) dickery-dock this time of year, and just exactly at 12 o'clock, he'll be coming down the chimney with omnibus gifts for the whole family. Uh, this stuff looks good. We're excited to uh, to offer this to you, and and we hope that uh, that your pent up demand has not uh, sort of uh, run out and dissipated, but that the pressure has continued to build, and now you can release it by buying multiple 
sizes and designs. And then after a short refractory period, place a new order. Yeah, that's right. January's t-shirts will be just as cool. There are, yeah, the shirts are always limited time. So if you like one of the mediocrity designs, do not delay because they will be replaced by two new designs at the start of every month. Omnibusproject.com slash store for details. Omnibusproject.com slash store. These journalists started tracking down um, this supposed Hal Croves. Um, so they follow him to, uh, I think, Acapulco, where he's kind of a, a, a innkeeper living in anonymity. And they spy on him. And in fact, this Luis Spota guy starts opening his mail. Oh, because it's Mexico oh, these of the, are the old days. Mexico of the late forties. <laughs> <laughs> you can just <laughs> sure uh, and finds that um, he's carrying on a torrid conver- uh, uh, correspondence with Eleanor Roosevelt with Kaiser Wilhelm <laughs> II, where he calls him daddy, but not in that way. No, he finds that he uh, the guy who was saying he was Hal Cross is actually living in Alcapulco as Traven Torsvan, okay, uh, a uh, Norwegian, an American immigrant who um, came down to work in the cotton fields and later kind of lucked into a job taking photographs for archaeological expeditions. This is a big trope in in, um, in all these expat Mexican novels. There's always American college students tromping through the woods. So I assume that was actually happening. Sure. Um, looking for ruins and whatnot. And and so he was the, pho- the photographer. And there's a surviving photo of this Torres Vaughn character in one of these expeditions. And he looks exactly how you want him to with a big pith helmet. Um, and then doing a series of odd jobs from exterminator to, to I don't know, bookbinder so the, the, on the Mexican coast. So the agent now is also living a false identity. Hal Croves up, appears to be Traven Torres Vaughn. And when, and this, uh, you know, Traven later, um, Torres Vaughn later married uh, at a Yasha Heifetz concert in Mexico City. He, he met a, a Mexican woman named uh, Rosa Elena Lujan and married her. So he was married to a Mexican woman for many years. And when he finally died in the late 60s, she um, announced that, you know, now it can be told. And B. Traven was actually Traven Torres Vaughn, a.k.a. Hal Croves, a Chicago-born uh, American in Mexico, um, a uh, the product of a Norwegian American father and uh, you know Anglo-Saxon, just a regular boring old Scotch English mother um, who came to Mexico and stayed. Did he kill Trotsky? <laughs> he probably killed Trotsky. And she at the end of the conference, she was like, "And he probably killed Trotsky. No questions." <laughs> so if that's the case, then why is this a mystery still? Well, so we now have two. Uh, possible identities for B. Traven, Hal Croves, and Traven Torres Vaughn. Somewhat later in life, sometime between 1969 and, what, this 1990 New York Times article I'm reading, an interview with Rosa Elena Lujan, she announced that, in fact, um, and, and she she lived until 2009. In our time, you know, that's the distant past to our listeners, but, right. you know, she was alive. 11 uh, years ago. Yeah, she was alive when I was, when I was already a has-been. Um, <laughs> And to the end of her life in 2009, she actually claimed that although he wouldn't let me t- talk about this while he was alive, he said, only after I'm dead can you let this be known, that Hal Crows, before he was Traven Torsvon, before they were both betraven, was also Rhett Marut, oh. a Bavarian actor turned revolutionary. 
who had actually been part of this cabal that had briefly, in 1919, turned his part of Bavaria into a Soviet-style republic before the Weimar police came in and, and shut down the Reds. So Rhett Marut reinvented himself as the son of a Norwegian diplomat. Yes, apparently the, one of the reasons to pretend you're American at this time is because you could say you were from San Francisco. Do you know why you would want to say you were from... San Francisco in the in the around 19, in the 1920s uh, because yeah the presumption would be you're a good dancer <laughs> yes I mean that's one of the fringe benefits uh-huh. uh, no the records had all been lost oh, in, the, in the fire and earthquake oh so you could be it's it's just you could like be anybody you could falsify your yeah. your birth certificate and claim you were yeah in. I was born in 1889 in uh, San Francisco and nobody could say boo basically oh. they would happily give you riceroni and send you on your way. Oh, that's kind of brilliant. It's too late now. You can't do it. Mm. Is there some place you could say you're from today where, um, uh, you know, it's such a disaster that... You know, my arrest record, um, this, 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 I wish there was a way to do an omnibus re- uh, show on this because courthouse fires persisted uh, until modern times as a thing where everything... Everything was lost, and there was a courthouse fire in Boulder, Colorado, where my arrest and imprisonment records, mug shots, police reports from my time in jail there, all disappeared in a puff of smoke, and no one can find them. And um, you were so smart to do these crimes before computers, right? There's no there's there as far as I can tell, there's no record of it except for the one time I admitted to it at the Canadian border and got turned away. Back then, there was one crime solving computer, and Batman had it. Beep 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 beep, beep. and a little piece of paper would come out and say, "John Roderick is the Joker." Uh, so I so I'm I'm stunned that you could still lose all the records of a of a whole county. Do you think this rash of courthouse fires is because of? People like you who know that they can get expunged if they if they set fire to a courthouse. I mean, I'm not saying you lit the Boulder courthouse on fire, but did you? You no, did. No, right? I think that what it is is there were a lot of cows that were housed in courthouse basements. Cows, and they, cows, and they still used oil lamps, and cows were oh. constantly knocking over oil lamps, and then and, and then farting methane all over them. Yeah, and then and the, the the conflagration would would burn the whole town down or at least the courthouse. I think Mrs. O'Leary's cow never kicked anything. It's just, you couldn't say in the papers, it farted cow farts all over the oil lamp, igniting the, the, igniting the barn. Is that, is the methane concentrated enough in a cow fart that all you have to do is just fart on a lamp? I'm from the Reagan era. You remember how Reagan always used to say that cows were causing oh, yeah, global right. warming and right. greenhouse and gases? A vegetable. Yeah. 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 Those two things. <laughs> that, that's no matter, what I remember about No matter it. what the press asked him about around Contra, he would say, well, ketchup is a vegetable and, and uh, greenhouse gases. Come. Why is he Carson? Um, uh, the... So yeah, so you could claim San Francisco, much as right. much as you can claim to be a, law, a good, upstanding citizen in Boulder. That's that's uh, that's genius. Did, did you ever? You never tried to get a fake ID. I actually got my hands on uh, a stack of blank baptismal certificates, and I is this a way to get a fake ID? It used to be you could you claim, didn't need a civil document. You could claim that your birth certificate was lost or your that that you'd never been issued one, but you could. Present a baptismal certificate and some other supporting evidence. This was back when the driver's license was just a laminated piece of cardboard. You and I both had old bad tech driver's licenses. Yeah, uh, where where if the if the license got wet, it would come delaminated <laughs> right. and the picture would fall out. <laughs> yeah. I was like, no, this is my license. Sorry. 
But uh, I and I took this baptismal certificate and I weathered it in that way that you used to do. You dip it in coffee and then, you know, kind of. I went overboard and kind of burned the edges so it looked like a treasure map. For a Mormon, falsifying documents is less bad than actually buying the coffee. So I, <laughs> I, I, this is unavailable to me. <laughs> uh, and I had the, all the documentation. And I was going to go down and, um, and you know, like like gird my loins and go in and, and present the, all this documentation at the DMV to get, my, to get a fake ID. And then I took a trip to New York and... Uh, there was a, this was old time square when it was full of, um, porn, full of porn and bad, bad people. And there was a little kiosk that was like IDs. <laughs> and I, I <laughs> like now it's off brand Elmo, but like that guy was running an ID. Kiosk. I was like IDs. It was like a shop. <laughs> and I went in and was like, I'd like an ID. And he's, you know, kind of pulled his green visor down and sat, you know, pulled up to his typewriter and he was like, all right, name. And I was like, John Roderick. And he was like, date of birth. And I just gave him some date even, of birth. This is ridiculous. Even in movies, you have to go find the guy in the dimly lit back of the antique shop. No, he was just like, and he did the he did this incredible thing, which was I said my birthday. I I gave him my birthday, but with a different year, a different year. You know, I was like September, and my birthday is not September fourth. I'm just using that as an example. I was like September fourth, you know, 1964. I like that you don't want people to know your real birthday. It's on the internet if you want to know my real birthday. Don't send him a present. It was just a couple of days ago. Uh, and he typed it out September fourth, like, and so the birth the 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 birthday line is an entire line of this. I'm On a real idea, it would just be numbers, right? Just numbers. And he put some like fake uh, ID number, you know, like like seven two one eleven seventy four, and he put it through his laminator, and it was like fifteen dollars. And I brought that thing back with me to the west. And it worked eight out of ten times because it's out of state. Yeah, it was just like some New York what ID. New York, yeah, the guy at the at the quickie mark was like, "Okay, I guess, I guess you're 24." How old were you in this actual story? Seventeen. <laughs> Wait, is the ID store still there? I don't. Uh, no, I think I think you're right. It is an Elmo store. No, it's it's that it's... tickets kiosk. Now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bought really. Uh... I bought really cheap tickets to um, the play where everything goes wrong there. You could you could have gotten a fake ID if you'd been there in the 80s. If you just whisper to the guy. I bet he'd still do it. Um, so it was not uncommon for people to use San Francisco as a place of origin. Um, and, you know, a lot of people coming from Europe to Mexico almost certainly did so via. A lot of them came via North America anyway, so that's the border they would have crossed. Um, but uh, but Rhett Marut, um, this... Um, Who's like a D- dangerous dissident? Rhett Marut is a is a person. There's records. There for. is record of, but the records disappear in nineteen. Oh, sorry, the records disappear around you know the the twenties. Whenever whenever he would have showed up in London and got his way out of Europe, mm-hmm. um, he uh, the story that later got told was he was actually arrested for his part in this armed uprising and put into a truck, handcuffed to some other guy. And, but either with, you know, the door was left open possibly with the, com- the complicity of the driver or whatever. So while the truck's in motion, he and the other guy jump out, um, handcuffed together, like Tony Curtis and Sidney Poitier or whatever. And the other guy died on impact. And so he had to escape with a, you know, a dead guy on his arm. And I guess for the rest of his life, he did have a scar The the real Traven did, or, you know, the, the Traven who lived until 96 in Mexico had a scar on his wrist. That that bore out this story of a dramatic escape from Germany, and maybe that guy was actually Rhett Marut, 
and our <laughs> hero took his identity. Yeah, it's a Don Draper scenario. It was the other guy. It was it was me that died, and now I'm Rhett Maru. So the mystery appeared to be solved because you know his widow was interviewed many times. She, you know, scholars came, traumatologists came over and got to go through his papers. They got to see samples of Maru's handwriting. They got to see that in um, the first page of uh, what's he called? Traven Torsvan's Mexican Journal. He said something like. The Bavarian from Munich is dead forever. So, you know, a pretty right. clear indication that he was not uh, from Chicago. Although he could have been talking about the guy, the, the, <laughs> the, the dead guy that's still handcuffed That's him. the guy on his wrist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. His wife never noticed that he always just had a, a, a like a cloth over one shoulder. It's just a, it's just a tumor, honey. Uh but the problem with this Rhett and Marut story, so we now know that B. Traven was alias Hal Crove's alias, which was an alias of Traven Torreson, which was an alias of Rhett Marut. Um, the problem with the Rhett Marut story is it appears that Rhett Marut uh, kind of appeared in 1907. I don't think of that as a Bavarian name either, Rhett Marut. Yeah, what's going on there? I don't know. It sounds Hungarian to me. We would like to hear from some Central European listeners explaining to us, could a Bavarian in the 1920s really have been named... Rhett Marut. But Rhett Marut appears out Rhett of- a Star Wars character, honestly. You're right. Bounty hunter Rhett Marut. <laughs> he appears in 1907- Fully formed. Out of nowhere, right? Okay. All right. Which is, which is nice, because now we already have four identities for this guy, but there's still right. work for the Travenologist. Is he Kaiser do. Sose? <laughs> He's Kaiser Wilhelm. We've talked about this. <laughs> in 1980, a BBC producer working on a special about the Traven mystery- um, digs even deeper than ever before, trying to figure out if he, this guy was Rhett Marut, as, as even his widow n- later admitted, although she only became clear on this apparently sometime in the 70s. I love uh, that the implication of this is that all of the people that looked into this before dug down to a certain depth and then threw their shovels to the ground. They got enough for their article yeah. and were like, ah, I but did it. That's very B- relatable to me. <laughs> this, this intrepid BBC producer is like, wait a minute, what's my... My shovel is hitting something hard. Well, the thing about the thing about each new author is you have to come up with something to beat the old guy. You know, like that guy got just enough to publish, and which is very relatable to me as an author. Like, well, it doesn't matter if the work's thorough as long as it's plausible. Um, (laughs) As long as it's done. (laughs) As long as as long as the publisher has it and will get off my back. Um, So this BBC producer spent a long time trying to track down. Uh, you know, who this Rhett Marut guy was. And there were plenty of clues in London, it turned out. That was where he first sought asylum from Germany after his escape. Uh, and apparently all paths led... He finally got... Uh, after after a lot of dead ends, he finally heard from a, a city, a Polish city, in what was then East Prussia, today Poland, uh, with confirmation of the existence of a guy named Otto Figa. Uh, just a regular guy, a clocksmith's apprentice, um, born in uh, what is now Poland uh, in the 1890s. I Otto Fige. Otto Fige. And he was interested in, and the Otto Fige's mother's maiden name was Vinica. And this is what rang alarm bells for our BBC producer because. These are all Star Wars characters. <laughs> <laughs> because Fige and Vinica were two of the aliases that. Uh, that Rhett Marut gave the British authorities when he was seeking asylum there. 
Um, gave them as references or gave them as former aliases. Oh, former aliases. Yeah. Back home. I was sometimes Figa. I'm Rhett Maru, but I was sometimes Figa, sometimes Vinica. So the discovery of this Otto Figa and Otto Figa, luckily had, had, uh, well, he had, there's plenty of evidence in his favor. Um, his birthday was just two days away from the birthday that Rhett Marut had later claimed. Uh-huh. Um, so he's kind of like you. Yeah, he's, like uh, me in Times Square. <laughs> September 5th. That'll, that'll get him off my tracks. Um, there's also the fact that, you know, Figa, the names match Figa and Vinica. But also, uh, Figa, uh, Otto Figa had a brother and a sister still living in West Germany. And so this producer was able to visit them, and they could produce... Uh, photographs of the young Otto Figa and handwriting of the young Otto Figa. The handwriting is a little bit um, contested, you know, even in courtrooms today, that still happens. Right. Um, so Travenologists can believe the handwriting or not. But the, to me, the photographic, you know, if not for the birthday and the fact that the names Figa and Vinica both check out, the fact that the photographs, according to his living siblings, matched the earliest known photos of... Otto Figa. Well, no, they, they were Otto Figa, but they matched the photographs of... Rhett Marut oh. turned Traven Torsvon turned Hal Croves turned B. Traven. Have you seen these photos? Uh, I have never, I have not seen the child photos. Um, and to this day, there are still, you know, if you read the Wikipedia entry on B. Traven, it will talk about how the Otto Figa, um, oh, is it Figa? Have I been saying, I think I've been saying Figa and it's actually Otto Figa. They will say that the Otto Figa theory is really not held in in much regard. Hmm. Um, why would, why, why would, why would we stop here? Why would, why would, uh, Travenologists, I think that's not, the problem, not go the whole way. I think that's the problem. You want, you don't want the mystery to be solved. If this is your hobby. I see. Oh no, I can, I'm looking right here at, um, here's some, some photos of, uh, of Rhett Marut after he showed up in London in, uh, kind of an unfortunately Hitlerian mustache, and a, a flat newsboy cap. And here's Otto Feige from Germany. I don't know. It's not bad. I would say the no, the high eyes and the low nose are particularly convincing. I would say I am very convinced. Can you send Otto them over Feige to me? Is, Can I look at them here and on my side of the um, of the bunker? It's a little difficult because the, so, the yeah, Figa picture is in profile. He's in profile, but he does have a very long nose. Yeah, look at, and look at the way the nose starts flat at the bridge. Yeah. He does have many of the characteristics of his later self. Rhett Marut, then there's Torvan, and then there's Croves. I, could, I, I feel like the latter three are, are definitely the same man. Yes, I'm going to say they're all the same. I'm gonna, uh, no further questions. I, no further Your questions. Honor. And I believe their handwriting is the same, even if there's evidence to the contrary. You're now an expert Travenologist. I no, I was also fairly convinced by the Otto Feige case. And it seems to me that people um, disputing it are just, you know, they, they don't want the fun to be over. Right. There's, you know, a solved mystery. There's no TV show called Solved Mysteries. But I don't, but I don't feel that it is, I don't feel that it is solved by discovering that he is just some rando well, we from ha- Brandon. We have everything about his life in his five identities. I mean, we now have a pretty good paper trail. Um, you can see how this small town East Prussian, you know, got into left-wing literature, became an actor and a journalist, went to the big city, you know, uh, went to Munich, 
fell in with the Reds, started a revolution, got out just ahead of the cops, seeks asylum in London, um, gets to Mexico possibly via the U.S. border, um, has a series of odd jobs, and then you know based on his journalistic past and you know starts writing novels, continues his novels. Yeah, and and, uh, when how old was he when his first novel was published? Uh, if he was born in 1882, then his first book came out uh, in from a Berlin-based house in 1926. So he already would have been in his 40s. And in fact, he already would have been out of Germany. So it looks like he would have, you know, maybe he had... His his sense of the publishing scene still would have led him to contact back in Germany, even though he was he had already fled. So the possibilities here are that he is changing his identity repeatedly to escape a dastardly past, either because uh, either because he's being pursued by Interpol because or, he's a revolutionary, or Interpol, the inner demons of. Right, of, you inner know, Like maybe he just doesn't want to think about the past and the the violence and the failures. Or he's like a Jack the Ripper who keeps who keeps killing and then changing his identity and moving on. Oh, you think he's you think he's got a reason for all these new identities? Like, a, well, the only other reason is that he's a total nut and that this is what he thinks is fun. But <laughs> but it, there's no evidence that he that anyone is having fun with this other than him. Right? I mean, he. Well, so the, there seem to be like, as I think about it, the reason for the Rhett Marut identity could be that now he's in the big city starting a new career as an actor. Right. That's a time when you might. Stage name. Yeah. Stage name, journalistic pen name. Um, this, the reason for, um, the reason to change that name once he flees Germany and flees Europe is obvious. That's why you want to pretend to be Traven Torsvon, a, uh, of good American stock. But why would he reveal his aliases at the to to London authorities, if you're like, right. if you're like, I'm I'm Tarsvold Torvane, why the heck would you say? But also, aka Rhett Marut, aka Otto Friesbald. Is it, um, you know, an abundance of, you know, out of an abundance of effort to seem to be cooperative in hopes of getting the asylum? You know, yeah. now you feel like you're safe. Um, you know the guy. The guy interviews you for an hour, and you tell him the whole sordid story. Maybe leaving out the communism because you want asylum. He he jots down the you know fi- he puts Figa and Vinica in your file. Um, it's bad tradecraft if you're if you're if you're truly into being well, sneaky. This is not you know he was not, he was never trying to construct a life. You know he was always just kind of staying one step ahead and just trying to lay low in a time when you actually could. You know today. Uh, you know, as we were saying, courthouses don't burn down anymore. Da- the data is all in a cloud. Right. And it's really not possible to live this sort of life anymore, to to disappear into the bushes, really. I mean, you anybody who wants to follow you probably still can, right? Is, is, is that a net good for society? Uh, the one thing I've never understood is if you want to disappear into Mexico and live the quiet life, you absolutely can – just don't write multiple novels, right? Like what to write a novel, I guess to make art and put it out there and have it consumed by others is a, a need separate from the need to be lauded and noticed and celebrated and 
And um, think about all these stories you hear about stars or writers who like have alt accounts online and pseudony- social media pseudonyms and stuff so they can get in there and argue about their own work. You uh-huh. know, like, <laughs> like even if they're, even if people don't know it's them, they really want to get in and, and mix, mix it up about their art with the reader or viewer or listener, you know? I, I was thinking they get caught sometimes, and that's when it's funny. I was thinking of it in the in the um, in the other way, which is that like I discovered the other day that Kelly Deal, Kim Deal's twin sister from the Breeders, yes, who passed away, right? Uh, uh, no, Kelly Deal is still alive, and in fact has a side gig where she knits scarves <laughs> um, and sells them. And so, although she is, you know, probably occupied a certain amount of her day being Kelly Deal, guitarist of the Breeders, and and um, like just cool recovering junkie chick from Massachusetts, uh, she also is like, is she big in the scarf community? Well, she's actively knitting and selling scarves and other knit garments. And I reached out to her because I, first of all, I liked her work, but the, but the idea of it was so fascinating to me. She's not really trying to sell her scarves on the strength of her guitar playing, right? She's not, Hmm. she's not actively like buy some, you know, buy Kelly deals, old t-shirts or whatever. She's just knitting scarves. And if you if you if you research her deeply enough, you find that she's not hiding it, but it's it's just something that's not limelight based activity at all. And she, they might enjoy the break. They might enjoy the the possibility for their new work to be enjoyed on its own merits. They might just you know she's not think think it's unseemly to lead with your. Yeah, but irrelevancies about your past life. But she didn't call herself Emilio Estevez either, right? She's not disavowing herself or her 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 heritage. In my own community, I know um, uh, a woman named Jackie Fuchs who who was a you know a a Jeopardy multi day champ. You know, won enough money I think to make it into a tournament of champions or, or be on the cusp of one. And it wasn't until like her fourth show where Alex said, "Aren't you? uh, Tell us about your music career." And then it turned out she was Jackie Fox bassist for for the runaways really yeah and she'd already like won three jeopardies and kind of become a social media sensation before everyone's like wait what she was in joan jett's band (laughs) wow (laughs) and i think it was exactly for that reason like she wanted to be you know appreciated on the basis of her jeopardy chops right and not the past but but as someone who's whose desire to create whose career has happened in a time when that all was predicated on being somewhat in the public eye and, and desiring to be like it, desiring, desiring it in the sense that there was no other option for your music to be a success for it to be consumed without being a public, without being a public figure profiles written about you and people knowing where you live. Yeah. All the rock stars that you knew, at least in Seattle, who tried to, you know, wear a Mexican wrestler mask or, or be like sunny day real estate and not do interviews. Those were all unsuccessful attempts to keep privacy or to keep anonymity. 
right? They didn't, they weren't successful at the, the level and they, uh, at the level of actually protecting their anonymity, but also not creatively successful. The mystique thing works occasionally, like with, um, you know, the early Bell and Sebastian records or something. Right. Question mark and the mysterious. Question mark and the mysterious. <laughs> exactly. Where that's, where it's kind of the gimmick of the band is who are these people actually? Um, and I wonder if that ended up working out in Traven's favor when all these magazine profiles were written about him as a, as a mystery man. He, maybe he, maybe he enjoyed that. Maybe he was tormented about his past or maybe he, maybe he liked that, um, that he was a blank slate that, well, people are, people are talking about me, I guess. Some are right and some are wrong, but for a lot of people, that's the dream. He wanted to be there on the set to watch the movie being made. I mean, I, I, I find that incredibly charming in a way. Wouldn't you? As long as he's not changing his identity for sinister reasons. Otherwise, I mean, it, if he's not, then it's just a weird quirk that is, I don't know, like really endearing. Yeah, I, I guess at that in the fifties, he could have come out and been like, "Yeah, look, I, I escaped Germany in the twenties. Like, there's no reason for him not to." Right. But, um, but either he, you know, he likes the mystique. He thinks it's a, it, he's doing it as a smart career move, or he's, I think, more likely there's you know there's something inside him, whatever those demons are that you know he's he's just like us, and he wants to see Humphrey Bogart do his novel, but. Um, but he also kind of wants to be left alone and not and leave the past in the past. If you want to be left alone, you could your alias should be something like Kevin Smith. <laughs> Are you saying that director Kevin Smith is actually uh is actually Jack London? Is actually Jack the Ripper? It's not impossible. And that concludes B Traven Entry 1332.PR2502, certificate number 39453, in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that you are B. Traven. <laughs> are you re- all B. Traven? Reveal yourselves. You, they might have better knowledge about B. Traven. You know, all this stuff, all these new discoveries happened in the 60s, 70s, 80s. You know, maybe there's a... Maybe there's new Travenologists in the future who actually can plot air molecules backwards and see where he was actually standing when. B. Traven might have been a sentient Aspen the entire time. Time traveler? His work is just being generated by, by, by like, mold spores. I mean, an argument against time travel is that people do not come out of the woodwork with no paper trail anymore. So when somebody does, like this guy, or so we can assume that either time travelers are keeping their heads down right, and not sharing the secrets of the future or, you know, taking advantage of them to win sports bets or, or buy stock or whatever. But how do you account for that picture from 1910 of the guy with the cell phone in Times Square? <laughs> yeah, like it looks like he's wearing a, a Smith's Meet His Murder t-shirt, <laughs> but it's just an optical illusion. He's actually not a time traveler. But maybe B. Traven was. Uh, if, you, if you are listening in the future, um, it's time to come back to um, 1930s Mexico. They need you. I want to go to 1930s Mexico just so I can be the one that kills Trotsky. You just want... I would have um, done a better job. You just want cheap tacos at the cantina. Dead. Uh, anyway... He would have stayed dead. He did stay dead. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a theory about Trotsky? B. Traven is Trotsky. Oh. Uh, he, he, might, he might be Trotsky. What if he accidentally said, what's oh. your name? Uh, I might be Trot... Uh, tr- trot... 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 Tr
I uh, I encourage you if you are B Traven or and even if you're not to go to Facebook, <laughs> Twitter, and Instagram. I would say especially if you're not. Look up at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick to see what we're up to, what crazy hijinks we're up to today. Uh, our uh, shows are archived at Omnibus Project. Um, I'm on Instagram, and you can see what I'm up to up to the minute, ripped from the headlines. You can email us and. Um, Ken will almost certainly answer, especially if you are argumentative and send us an email that's chastising us for some dumb thing that only you are mad about. I don't think I'll be. Oh, you mean I'll, I'll, I won't argue back? No, no, no. If they're you right. hardly ever argue back. No. Uh, you can email. Usually people, usually people sending an email are right yes. because they've taken the time to look it up. People on social media might be wrong. Yeah. If you're going to write an email, take the time to be right at least, at yeah. the very least. But you can email us, us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Um, you can go on our Facebook page, which Ken does not check, but I do. This is the paradox of of um, of Omnibus social media. You mean the Futurelings page? The or? Futurelings page on, on social media accounts. I read it sometimes. Oh, I guess you do. That's right. You reply to people. I'm, I know you must read it because anytime you, your reputation is besmirched in any way, suddenly yeah. there's three paragraph Jeremiah from, from you, even though I didn't know you read the page. That's right. I'm like, how dare you? You keep an eye on that page. <laughs> how dare you? But only, only the worst offenses get you to... Get you to um, Crack your knuckles and get out of the old typewriter. It's not just me that uh, that, uh, that uh, it's not just when they besmirch me. It's when they besmirch you or our integrity in I, particular. I appreciate that. Uh, you can mail us actual letters, boxes, um, dried foods to PO Box five five seven four four Shoreline Washington nine eight one five five. And if the spirit takes you, you can support the show directly. By going to patreon.com slash omnibusproject and pledging your financial support. And for that, we are exceedingly grateful. Hold on, I'm still opening the mail. Also, if you uh, support the show at Patreon, omnibus, uh, the Omnibus Project at patreon.com. No, patreon.com slash omnibusproject. Uh, you have access to all of our bonus features. And some of those bonus features include... You receiving real paper documents from us and phone calls, Zoom calls with us. We'll we'll just like we'll start calling you at weird times of the day or night. We'll call your wife and tell you have a girl. Tell her you have a girlfriend. Ken can be um, your lifeline if you're ever on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. We'll start doing like Harpo Marx esque pranks. Yeah, we'll come to your house and just cut the plugs off your appliances for no reason. At the $1,000 level, I will come to your home and cut your tie. Honking a little, right in half. Honking a little uh, bicycle horn. <laughs> hey, by the way, I was opening the mail right now and this is pretty good. It's uh, you mentioned that it was recently your birthday. Yes. You got a chocolate cake themed birthday card. I like chocolate cake. From Jesse with a, uh, she knows you like chocolate cake. She sent you a, uh, a an Albertsons slash Safeway gift card. Oh, <gasps> Oh, that's where the best chocolate cake is. Famously. Now, it doesn't say this. Uh, all we know here is that this gift card is between 5 and $250. <laughs> so you can either buy a lot of chocolate cake or a lot of chocolate cake. Um, which Jesse is that from? A Jesse we know? I don't know. Jesse IE. We can't know her that well because she sent it to... Oh, to the... She could have just sent it to my house. If... Jesse from Gig well, Harbor. It is Jesse Jesse IE. Jesse from Gig Harbor. I hope you treat yourself to a delicious slice of chocolate cake from Safeway. 
That's wonderful. Thank you, Jesse. And then Andrew, uh, after we did the show about ghost forest, you remember the petrified trees of the Pacific of Coast? Of course. Uh, he actually uh, he actually visited the Neskowin Ghost Forest. He took his family there because we did a podcast about it. Nice. Which is a lot of. I mean, I'm glad we didn't do Chernobyl that week. <laughs> that shows a lot of trust, Andrew. Yes. And he did a painting of the ghost forest and a, a gouache painting and sent us these. Um, well, this is our this is our painter. I don't know. Has he sent us work before? I'm not sure Andrew has sent us work before. We have at least two painters. Let me see that. But That's I think this beautiful. Is, I think this is work from a new, an upcoming new artist named Andrew. Oh wait, this is a photo of a painting. Yes. So uh, our our normal painter actually sends us the original watercolor. But Andrew painted a big gouache um, painting for his living room. Oh, that's wonderful. Look at that. I I stayed right there up on the green bluff. You can see it left. And uh, he really did capture it. Thank you so much, Andrew. Yeah, thank you, Andrew. We'll put this on the the image feed on the Patreon site um, so some of our subscribers can enjoy your work as well. Listeners, from our vantage point here in the distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We may be as mysterious to you as B. Traven. We hope and pray that no catastrophe will ever come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>